So, yeah, anyway, this AM to Homes talk is Wednesday the 11th of July at 6 p.m. at Waterstones. Uh-huh. I have to say that again later, because now this whole... This might be the intro bit. But the intro to the intro this bit. Isn't, this isn't good. Okay, this can be the intro to the intro. So it's not the intro, because no. I'm doing the intro. Yeah. <laughs> and my just... plans for the intro were totally different than this. Whoa. That's right. You're mixing it up. I am. I'm uncomfortable. That's good as Wait till I do the intro, Rob. Okay, right. Walking down the street, they get the funniest looks from everyone they meet. Hey, hey, it's the podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the end of all things with Kate Feld and, and Rob Cutforth. Yeah. I, I think, do you, do you ever see the Seinfeld episode where they put, you know how they have that, that, um, that jazzy kind of in between all their yeah, skits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> One time they put like a choir in and like a, it, no, like these voices that go, yeah. yeah, and everyone hated it. Oh, I remember <clears throat> that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm wondering. If Are you saying be... that this is like the Seinfeld Maybe. choir? No. <laughs> no, Rob. It's a, a one-off. Being... Okay. I'm, not saying, I'm not saying we need to do this every week. Okay. Because that would just be well, silly. Well, do you know what's going to happen once, now? it's great. Yeah, fine. I think I have a feeling... It's going to go one of two ways. Either people are going to say, right, I want a song from Kate every time. Oh, no. And then you're in trouble. No. Yeah, okay. I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, here's the podcast. Yep. Good. So there we are. Great. I did it. Well, very good. I'm happy for I, I both of us. I feel good. Excellent. What have you been doing today? Working out? I, I did go to Pilates class, but mm-hmm. I also... Um, met with a writing client that I'm working with, mm-hmm. um, and I also met with a friend and had tea, <laughs> um, and did some work at my computer, which is in no way interesting to no, anyone. No, it's not interesting. Had a nice at all. walk, you know. Did like you? this isn't interesting. No. Yeah. I'm gonna start. To, I'm gonna ask you a question that I know you really hate right at the start. Oh, go ahead then. Have you been watching the World Cup? You know I haven't, Rob. Not not at all. No. Is it only because the U.S. aren't in it, or is it just you're just anti-football? I'm not anti-football. It just means nothing to me. Like football. I'm football agnostic. Can, do you not get wrapped up in it at all? When I'm playing it, yeah. You play football? Well, I used to. Get the fuck out of here. That's that's news. What? What in England? About this? No, no, in America. Oh right. A long time ago. What? As a child? No, when I was in university. You played. University football. Well, not intercollegiate, right. just intramural. It was at oh, St. John's yeah, College. Okay. The team was called the Kunai Kthanai, which means the hell bitches. <laughs> and it was women's soccer. And it was we only played against each other. Oh, and I we see. would have cigarettes at, like on the sidelines at, at halftime. Um, we had great parties. Really I, good parties. You know, it's weird. I Sometimes I think you are actually Janine Garofalo. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I would. That's a good thing to be. Yeah, right. I think so, but it, there's your anecdotes are always like something that I would imagine Janine Garofalo would say. Really? Yeah. Wow, I haven't thought about Janine Garofalo in a long time. I know it's because we're. I'm a '90s guy. She, she weird stuff went like her her life went a weird way. Like did it? She, yeah, I don't really know. Something weird happened to her. Like she got really skinny and like 
became really intense and like what? yeah 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 seriously like look her up she you know because i always associate her with obviously her role in reality bites yeah who's you know that's pretty much me really yeah um yeah and then she kind of yeah but of course that's just a role reality so. bites is that I, what's singles then is that a different film? Oh, wait a minute. Am I mixing up singles and Reality Bites? She... Okay, so Reality Bites okay, is the one warning with Winona Ryder. Okay, 90s chat to the maximum. And singles. Was she in singles instead? That was the one with that... The, what's, Westerberg. What, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, that was yeah. a Seattle one where yeah. they were kind of capitalizing on the whole grunge thing. What was Reality Bites? Is that the one Reality with, Bites was the Hollywood version of singles, essentially. Um, it was Ethan Hawke and Winona Ryder ah. and someone else. No, the one I'm thinking of has, uh, oh God, what's the guy from, this is me trying to think of movie stars' names. The guy from like Carmen, a Cameron Diaz film. Oh fuck, forget it. Who cares? Yeah, sorry, this isn't a film podcast, so no, that's why we're shit at talking about film. Let's talk yeah. about books, hey? There's I want to talk idea. more about the World Cup. Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, you no, can we don't do have that. To. Okay, fine. Like, no. We, we're hosting it. Did you know that? Like, us together, me and you. Hosting the World Cup? Yeah. The one after Qatar. It's a joint bid between the US, Canada, and Mexico. When you said me and you, I yeah. thought you went you and me. My literally. people and your people <laughs> and other I was people's like, people. Shit, I can't host the World Cup, Rob. <laughs> I got too much on. Barely hosted author of Anna Waterstones. Yeah. Um, okay, so wait. That means in what year? I don't know. The one after the next one. So America Eight and years Canada? from now. And Mexico. And Mexico. How funny is that? Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah. Jeez, there's a dinner party for you. It'll be interesting when that wall gets built. Yeah. Don't get me started on that. Right, we can't today. talk politics. Don't get me started. Right, and we won't talk politics at all. Okay, let's talk about books and shit. Um, um, do we want to start by saying uh, Joanna... Walsh is our guest. We can start by saying that. And um, I think she's kind of... She's... Well, she came over because of your night. The or real no, she's, story well, in the She, she didn't come over because of yeah. your night. She was, she was here for doing, doing her creative writing, MA teaching sort of business. But she's very much an experimental writer. Works across different forms. Yeah, works across different forms. So I thought um, it might be good for you to talk about mixing narratives so yeah basically i think one of the, one of the things that joanna does so so well that i think is so interesting is she she works across many many different forms sometimes even seems to invent them herself um and so what that means is you know she writes a lot of auto fiction yeah um so this is narrative fiction that sits between you know it's consciously autobiographical based on one's own experiences but lifts off from those experiences into the realm of pure you know a fiction where anything could happen people can grow wings and fly off you know um and there's kind of then you know it, it may be true but true symbolically rather than you know literally uh, to what but happens. it can also be literally true as well, can't it? It can, sure, it can, mm. but it doesn't have to be. Yeah. That's what that's what makes it auto fiction rather than memoir, right? Um, so she writes that kind of stuff. She writes brilliantly, writes um, essays and creative nonfiction. She does her work is very philosophical. 
um, and very intellectually alive. Um, and, you know, she she's contributed stuff to the letters page and, you know, writes in the, the form, epistolary form and, mm-hmm. you know, does... And she's really up for experimenting with different forms. You know, Seed, she did was a sort of really interesting online project. Um, and Break Up, her most mm-hmm. recent book, is, you know, really... I don't even really know how to describe it. It's a, I can't either. Yeah. I try to in the uh, in the podcast and fail miserably. So, But the interesting thing about this kind of writing is, and this is something I would love to ask her about, which is when you're writing across various forms, you have to make a decision about what form you're going to write a particular piece in. Yeah. And, you know, if you are someone... I mean, like for for someone like you who really just writes fiction, mm-hmm. that's easy. You can sometimes. Decide, I beg your pardon. Well, you don't have the whole stress in about is this going to be a poem? Is it mm-hmm. going to be? Is it going to have line breaks and stanzas, or is it going to be a prose poem, or is it going to be a short story, or is it going to be a lyric essay? You know, and do these distinctions really matter anyway? You know, is there? You know, there's a writer called Claire Louise Bennett. Uh, who I really love, who's written a book called Pond that I know Joanna thinks a lot of too. And she kind of just says, you know, look, it's just writing. You know, you can kind of call it what you like. But, and sometimes her work is published as fiction. And sometimes yeah, but that, I mean, that but, begs the question, what, how do these stories start? Do you have a plan of what, about the narrative forms you're going to mix together or is there an, does the story come first in these sorts of things? Well, that's the question. Which comes first? And I, I actually think that um, if you're doing it right, you can't decide what form you want something to be in until you start writing it. And it will then kind of fall into the form it should fall into. Form follows content, I guess. Mm-hmm. Have you ever started a, a story and thought, you know what, straight prose this time? I have. You have not, you liar. I have. No, I, I have. <laughs> um, but I think since I, I certainly when I first started writing, I mostly just wrote, you know, very short fiction and didn't mess around with things too much. But once you start screwing around and experimenting, it's like. Sometimes you experiment and it works. It mm-hmm. works really well. In fact, it works better than writing it straight would have. And so then, it's very. It becomes almost hard to write it straight because you think, "Huh, okay, but yeah, but we could do something else here." There's. Mm-hmm. It's, it opens up a whole other level in your practice that is is kind of annoying <laughs> sometimes <laughs> because you know. But then it, you've got to really trust your own ability because I think the biggest problem I would have with that sort of business is I just feel like a prick I'm like oh yeah I'm going to put a poem in here or uh, you know this is going to be a bit of a play yeah but you and know I what? wouldn't because I, I don't know I, I think you, you have to be you have to be have very confident in your own writing to go yeah this is I'm going to mix it up here well it doesn't happen overnight no you have to you experiment a bit people like it it gets published you know, you th- look at it again and feel like it holds up. You're excited by it. And then you gradually become bolder, mm-hmm. you know, and that's so that's what happens. And yeah, you have to be, as we've talked about many times before, you have to be kind of a narcissist mm-hmm. to be 
a writer, yep. but particularly to be an experimental writer, because what you're doing is saying... Not only is this my story, but it's also my style. Yeah. You really... It takes a lot of will um, and a really strong sense of self to impose that upon the work. Yeah. And okay. then to impose that work upon the world. So what do you get more joy out of when you come up with some clever way of telling a story or when you come up with a good story instead? Honestly, the story, or whatever it is you're trying to say, story, poem, the nut of it, the soul of it, you know, that is the primary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so with forum, I feel like the, the trick with it is to find a form that allows you to get across and do justice to and make something sing out of what it is you want to write. You know, what it yeah. is, and so that people can can get it, so that it works for them. Right. I would have thought that the easiest way to do that is to stick to the straight prose. See, I don't think so, because when I read prose myself, or when I read myself, I get, maybe it's just me, and maybe this is why I'm writing across different forms. I get so much more out of reading something that is formally inventive or Mm -hmm. does things differently. I just read The Autobiography of Red by Ann Carson, which is a novel in verse that is kind of bound up in um, a sort of narrative. It has an interview at the end of it. Um, And it is a novel because it tells a story that unfolds like a novel does, but it is in her own particular kind of poetry. Um, And it's... So that reading that I loved it and that really excited me hugely the way that you know reading a kind of straighter ahead novel hasn't in a really long time for me hmm. so I don't know you know that's just how, how I feel about it yeah I don't know I can't sometimes I just I think it, how do you know it's not a con not a con it, it's not a, a, gimmick? a trick a gimmick yeah um, sometimes it is yeah okay Sometimes it is. There's a lot of shit kind of, you know, shopped around under the name experimental writing. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that's so frustrating because a lot of what calls itself experimental writing and a lot of what you will hear at an experimental poetry night or read in an experimental journal is not good writing. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not good. And they're using experimentalism to kind of... Paper over the cracks. Paper over a lack of rigor or a lack of... Like, a lot of it is really Mm self-indulgent. And it's hard to connect with and maybe doesn't have significance for someone else, you know, on a meaningful level. Or maybe it's just just grammatical tricks, you know, and it doesn't really have much content. Um, So, yeah, there's bad writing in every kind, every form, you know. And and that's... We're not going to get away from that. Um, I also know that you've been doing a lot of submitting to publications. Yeah, well, I haven't. And you've been paying a lot. I haven't. I haven't. You haven't? You're, you're you creating said to a me, false expectation You said to me, you looked at your accounts and you put a absolute shit ton of money into paying to submit. Yeah, to so I had to do my accounts or I had to gather up all my receipts for my accountant yeah. and... My dad had given very kindly given me a little bit of money in my PayPal account, um, which he'd made <laughs> from PayPal. I hate PayPal. Anyway, go on. PayPal's great. 
especially when I get money yeah, in my yeah. PayPal from my dad's sale of used records. Um, <laughs> so Janine Garofalo. That's right. So anyway, uh, I just I had this money, and in the past I haven't submitted very much to competitions and you know places that charge reading fees and all that, just because I think well it's a slippery slope. You know, I just had like a no, I'm not going to do that policy. Yep. Um, I've got that right now. Right. So, but last year I said, okay, well, you know, he's given me this little bit of money and I'm not talking about a lot of money, but, um, maybe I'll just use this to like, it's, it's free money. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to use it to submit to some things. So I did. Okay. And (laughs) I'm just going to say it really added up. And I didn't submit loads, but when I was doing my accounts, I realized this is a lot of money, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what had also happened earlier that morning was I'd seen someone tweeting, a writer who's, you know, I would say is a successful writer. She's, I think she's head of a collection she published in America, um, going on Twitter to kind of have a rant about, uh, she said an emerging writer she knows had asked her this, this more successful established writer to help to submit something on her behalf to a magazine uh, that charged reading fees. Mm-hmm. Now, do you know what reading fees are? Uh, is that a, it's a fee by the publisher that says, I'll tell you if your thing is worth putting in my magazine or not. Yeah, it? essentially, yeah. It's, it's even to submit to the magazine. So if you just want to pub- get, get published in a magazine and submit work to it, you have to pay just to submit. Um, this is a whole new world to me. I didn't think that that really existed because that sounds like a con well, you know, now the small presses and, and independent, you know, literary magazine producers, publishers will say, look, you know, this, the work we do is valuable. It costs money. Mm-hmm. And this, this reading fee of three pounds or four pounds or whatever is our way of making sure we can pay the people who read for us or the people who work with us, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But like... The thing is, um, for this, as this writer was very rightly saying on Twitter, for an emerging writer, like, who, you know, doesn't necessarily have any money, mm-hmm. this is, you can't afford to do it. It's just another barrier, you know? It's like what my history teacher in high school had this great phrase, the dream tax. He used to call the lottery the dream tax. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at, like, the lottery or scratch cards or whatever, which are very popular in America, that's... That is the most aggressive tax in the world because the people who buy lottery tickets and scratch cards are poor, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Like, and for me, like, reading fees and high competition entry fees is the dream tax of the writing world, yep. you know? I wouldn't have a problem with it if it meant you get guaranteed feedback and a lot of it. But the fact that Fuck you, no. you probably get, like, boilerplate responses. You don't get saying, anything. Thanks, but no thanks. No. Not even that. No. Yeah. See, because when, when I've been submitting my novel to agencies, nobody charges. And I'd say of the however many, 40 or so agents I submitted to, I got auto responses from about half of them. Mm-hmm. And I got personal responses from about a quarter of them. And a handful are reading the full manuscript. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I do think that it's interesting that these small... It does feel like a con to me. Because if these people wanted to make money, then why don't they sell more magazines or sell ads or something? I think the problem is that 
the liter the world of small presses and independent publishing, you know, and small False literary economy. journals. Well, no, it's just that this is an anti-capitalist model. Okay, so these people, people who make small literary magazines, people who publish in them, people who buy them and read them, they are all doing it out of love for writing. Like they're not. No one in it is in it to make money. Well, that's so foolish. When, when you start. Then charging when money enters the mm-hmm. picture, it's not going to work. Yeah, you know. This reminds me of the, ugh, just such a scam. I did. It reminds me of FC United. I'm I'm not I'm not doing this on purpose to bring okay, it back to football. Okay, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm with you. I'm I with had uh, the FC United is this fan owned team United, yeah. that basically was um, uh, spawned when the Glazers bought Manchester United, and they said, "We don't want." you know to pay billionaires and they they said we're this you know try to be this socialist model everybody will pay like a, a tenor or whatever and then you'll have a say in the team and i said to them i'm happy to pay some money uh into the team but what happens if the team gets big i said if this team and it's not unheard of like look at look at the shitty little teams that have made it to the premier league oh yeah so what if it makes to the premier league do i get uh, a return on that do I get some of that TV money and they said oh no no you can get your 10 pounds back if you want and I just went I'm sorry but that's a fucking scam yeah well that's, I'm not a socialist <laughs> no I mean but I mean that's and this is the same thing with this like if you can't get enough readers to pay for your magazine to pay your writers then or advertising revenue then maybe it's not worth existing well no it's not that it's not worth existing it's still worth existing, but it's not worth existing and then charging people money. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, I mean, the work I do on The Real Story, you know, the Adam and I do running that journal, like, we, we've had loads of submissions lately, and I have spent a lot of time editing them. Mm-hmm. And because we did put in for Arts Council funding, um, you know, I do get paid for that. I pay myself to do that. But... I can tell you that what I actually gets paid get paid does not cover the amount, no. like, but not even close no. to the amount of time it actually takes me to, you know, edit and feedback stories, all that stuff. Yeah, but that's yes. a digital. Um, no, but this is magazine as well. It's not like there's not a print. There's, you don't have print fees and stuff. Yeah, that I suppose these other so, magazines. No, have. yeah, a lot of them are digital and they're still charging. And you know, I mean, look for a competition. I think it's more accepted that some writing competitions will charge fees. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way the model works is they pay a high-profile writer to judge the competition. And what that really means is that high-profile writer isn't sitting there going through, like, 5,000 submissions. They're nope. reading, like, the 10 cherry-picked shortlist um, that, and maybe providing feedback on each one. Yeah. Okay? So, and but people will submit to competitions because Roxanne Gay is judging it or something like that. Mm. I mean, Roxanne Gay is a good example of someone who that woman judges more competitions than, I mean, it's she's always judging competitions. I don't know if you know her. She's an American writer. Um, no. But like I said, you see the same names come up again and again. Mm-hmm. And so they can make good money judging these competitions. Yeah. And that's what they need the, the fees for is to pay these people the, the, the good money they get. Mm-hmm. to read these things and okay fair dues but there's a difference between charging well, seven or eight pounds yeah. and 20 the manchester writing prize was particularly horrific this year it was like 20 what was it 
27, 26, something like that. No. That's, I mean, when you are running a competition out of a university where all, you know, most of the people involved in the actual admin that kind of, you can make use they're of those costs. Anyway. They're getting paid anyway. Yes, yeah. you're going to have to ask a judge to, to you're going to have to pay a judge, but usually, like, that absolutely does not, it's a, it's a money-making scam. Of course it is. You know? And yeah. See, that's the thing. That's what pisses me off the most is that they try to pretend that it's a socialist model and then, oh, the salespeople get paid. Oh, the editor gets paid. But the writer, even if the writer gets selected, they don't get paid. So you're like, well, isn't it a literary magazine? Isn't, shouldn't the writers be paid first? And I, I had the same problem with the paper I wrote for for five years. Hmm. I wrote for five years for free and uh, found out one day that they were paying, like, and they got ads. They had loads of ads. And they're not paying any of their writers. But because there's so many writers that are desperate to be published. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a hundred people probably waiting in line to take over my column oh, when sure. I finish. So, but the fact that they're paying, you know, their salespeople and their editors and the admin people and the writers are, are getting jack makes me think, fuck that magazine. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I can understand that. I mean, I think that you and I have, as we've established in the past... <laughs> Have a different attitude towards making money. It is funny, and yeah. And getting paid. You, it, it's funny because you're you're kind of a socialist, and I'm more to the capitalist side. But at the same time, we're both getting fucked. Yeah, I mean, everyone's getting fucked, you know. But mm-hmm. I mean, I think that I just get annoyed when this system, what whatever success in the writing literary world means means is predicated upon winning competitions and getting mm-hmm. published in high profile prestige journals. Yeah. Like that's the first hurdle you have to clear. Do you right? think that that even is a, a key to success these days because there's so many of them and so many people getting published. Well, it's, such a, it's so dispersed that I absolutely disparate. think it's it's certainly uh, like the bare minimum, mm. you know, yeah. getting yeah, yeah, published yeah. in good places and Ideally, winning a competition or two. Winning yeah. a competition, sadly, is the thing that will definitely make agents knock on your door. Right, yeah. Um, winning a big, high-profile competition. And yeah. because, if you look at the copy in the Manchester Literature Festival brochure, which I used to write, and mm-hmm. every other brochure in every other literary festival, it's just a list of prizes that the authors have won. Yeah. And sometimes they'll say how many hundreds of thousands of copies their book sold, how many languages it's been translated into. It's all money, you know? So. Yep, it is. I should say that you're hearing a lot of background noise because we are in the quadrant at the University of Manchester, uh, this lovely green space. And it's very happy students who are graduating, really, because it's July in it. Oh, is that what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, some people are having their photos taken. And they're clapping at their own photo. That's interesting. But they also posed with their hands around their faces. Well, you know, that's the youth youths. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, <laughs> there's also a book sale over there, which yeah. we were a little bit late getting the podcast started because poor Rob had to wait yeah. for about 20 minutes while so I, I scrutinized every book and didn't buy one. Yeah, you had, uh, you had about 10 and about ten three or of four of which that I'd given you. Yeah. And he's like, nah, none of them. Yep. It's because you're so broke. You can't even afford a two-pound used book. They're two <laughs> pounds. Is that how much they want for those I things? I have no idea. Oh, I hope I hope they're not charging that much. <laughs> Some of them were really smelly, okay? <laughs>
Um, the other thing that you wanted to talk about, and that's, see, the problem with recording outside is that you can hear my paper rustling. I try to pretend that I, I don't actually read questions off a piece of paper. Yeah. So it's a giveaway. Dead yeah, giveaway. no, Rob has meticulous notes. Yeah. He's, he writes his own scripts. Well, it's basically, I'm really afraid of running out of things to say. Okay, Terrified. I'm Terrified. Well, it's because you never do. <laughs> what are you I'd saying, happen, You know what's funny? In the interview with Joanna Walsh, I had two proper brain farts. You will never hear about it, listener, because they've been well and truly edited out. The other thing you wanted to talk about was the joy of quitting. The joy things. of quitting? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's because, right. Because um, we talk, I should mention this, actually. Joanna Walsh, we talk about Read Women on the podcast. But, um, again, another peek behind the curtain. That was recorded a couple months ago. And a since then, behind the curtain. yeah, <laughs> down the rabbit hole. Oh dear! It's not a well-oiled machine. This <laughs> I can only do one a month. And uh, she, <laughs> stuff happens. It's really annoying. People, especially writers, they do things in between when we record our interview and when I put it out. I know the bastards. I know it's really annoying. Stop doing stuff. Stop being interesting. But anyway, yeah. So we have this great talk about read women, and she's quit. Yeah, they've women. closed it. Yeah. Oh, they've closed it completely. Yeah. Well, she was looking for, they were looking for, it's actually Joanna and three or four other women who were, who were running the Read Women Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they were looking for some, some folks to take it over. And no one stepped forward or, I don't know. They, so they decided to just close it down. Right. And it's still, it's still up. Um, you can still see all the tweets. And mm-hmm. it's still there as an archive. But it's no longer operational. Right. Um, so when you listen to the interview, it's, it's going to be a bit sad, that bit, isn't it, when we talk about Read Women? Well, and... I mean, I think they've been doing it for, what, four years or mm-hmm. something like that? I mean, it was in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. It has opened up so many people to incredible writing by women and has been recognized as a kind of, like, universally as a force of good things, you know, force for good. Yeah. So I think... But it takes, I think what people don't realize is that takes so much freaking time mm-hmm. and attention to run a Twitter account. People just think, oh, yeah, you know, you do a few tweets, whatever. Like, yeah. that doesn't take any time. Bullshit. I know. Um, it takes time, and it also takes your mind away from your work. This, you know? I, it's funny you say that, because the podcast Twitter has been in dire straits, because I've had so much other stuff on, you know, actually trying to write things. Yeah. So I've done maybe, like, half dozen tweets in the last two weeks well that's fine all right like who cares you know honestly it's just one of those things where i used to be on twitter all the time i know it's really it's really distracting these people isn't it well when especially when you see what they're doing they're now sitting back to back these two women are sitting in dressed up in very fancy dresses are sitting back to back making a kind of moon with their hands yeah clasping their hands over their heads together holding hands was there ever a time that you were that happy i've never been that happy Neither have I. I never ever. expect to ever be that happy <laughs> yeah. and carefree i think yeah. they're 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 like they're like some kind of commercial for chewing gum or something i don't yeah. know um so yeah anyway double mint yeah so so the thing about knowing when to quit is if if you know, some something that you're doing, no matter how well received it is, no matter how much people love it, it's it's so much harder to quit doing something that people love, that you get praise and perhaps recognition for. 
um, something that you think is important to do, and mm -hmm. that's why you started doing it. Yeah. But you have to quit, mm -hmm. you know? Sometimes you just have to quit. And if you keep doing it and not enjoying it and not feeling it as much mm -hmm. and allowing it to just take over part of your life, then you're, you're hurting yourself. Yeah, I think you can push through that to a certain degree because everyone has down moments, especially like when I look at, I won't say which podcast in particular, but if I see one that has some, a very bad listenership, get a bit grouchy mm. and think, fuck this, and like smash the thing. No, but I don't. Wow, I know. that sounds dramatic. I, I mean, know. I, th I'm, I, I am think dramatic. about this with, with literary nights too. Yeah. Um, well, you've burned through three or four of them, haven't you? I haven't. I haven't. <laughs> no. I did I did the Blog Awards with Chris, with Manchester Blog Awards, which became the Blog North Awards, which was, it sounds really boring and official, but was actually a f wacky live literature night, really. Mm -hmm. And we did it for nine years, and the last year we did it, it wasn't fun. It wasn't as much fun. Mm -hmm. We didn't get as many entries, so we just decided to stop doing it. And someone, a few people wanted to take it on. Yeah. And we said no, because we just didn't want anyone else to do it. You're not allowed to quit this podcast, Kayfeld. Well, at some point, well, let's talk about this, though, because at some point, this podcast will have jumped the shark. Oh, my God. That's some dark talk. No, but it will. At some point, you're going to you're gonna say, Rob Cutforth, you know what? Like, People I've enjoyed of... doing the podcast, yeah. but I'm not enjoying it as much, or... My novel's been published and I don't have time to do this shit anymore because I'm hugely successful now. <laughs> or, you know... Yeah, that would be hilarious. Yeah, like, so that might happen. In fact, it will happen. Never. It will. I'm saying it right now. No. You can play this bit okay. again. I don't think it was. I think it's more likely that I'll have nothing but the podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. God, that was a I'll lose laugh. my job. Yeah, that's right. I'll lose my my wife will leave me. Yeah. It'll just be me. Yeah. Editing the podcast forever. Yeah. I'll be like one of them sad dudes in the corner of a nightclub at sixty, still trying to pick up chicks with my podcast. <laughs> oh God, that's such a that's. Hey man, yeah. you heard my podcast? It'll even after pod, no one listens to them anymore. I'll still be doing it. Does anyone listen to them now? Are you, are you fucking <laughs> shut your mouth. <laughs> No, yes. serious question. It's, don't don't ask those <laughs> questions. We can't ask those questions. They're, I don't want to know the answer to them. These are existential questions. Yeah, yes. Yeah. We'll ask the ether. Okay. And pretend that it never happened. Hey. La la la, podcasts are popular. Well, especially this one. Hey, do you know what day it is today? Wednesday. It's Midsummer Eve. I don't even know what that means. That sounds like a... Like a, a douche commercial from the 80s. <laughs> yeah, right. In fact, um, it was it was called Midsummer's Eve, wasn't it? <laughs> Maybe it was. Listeners don't know what douche is. Yeah, let's not take them there. <laughs> it's but pretty let's funny. talk about the other Let me name tell you something. It, before we, is, before we do, look on YouTube and find, I think it's called Summer's Eve douche commercials. Okay. Right, we'll leave okay. it there. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to change the subject now. <laughs> Away, away from douche commercials, <laughs> if you'll allow me, sir. Yeah. Um, because I bet it's funny because I hear British people say douchebag and they have no they, idea. They have no idea, they have no what, idea what they're saying. Oh, they don't Sharon realize Olds, that it's a real thing. Sharon Olds wrote a hilarious poem about douchebags. <laughs> yeah. I'll send it to you. Okay. It's brilliant because she actually she writes about this and about how she actually knows, <laughs> she remembers what a douchebag is. Yeah. <laughs> and it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. All I remember from that commercial was a daughter saying to her mother, Mom, I just don't feel fresh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I remember this commercial. 
Mom, I just don't feel fresh it's, anymore, Mom. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, 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 the numbers of mums in the world, poor 80s mums, who had to field the question, what's a douche, mum? I think that those are moms. Yeah. Because there would be no mums fielding that question. Did I say mum? Yeah, you said oh, mum. See, see, you've gone native. I'm going back to Canada, and I've got to get rid of this native baloney when I go back. Yeah, you need to be... What you need is to be fenced off with some other Kanekians for yeah. a week before. Do you know what's funny? I will be in Canada for the end of the World Cup. Oh, wow. What if England go all the way, Kate? So, and? And what? Well, what if I'm, you know, I live in England, and if England were win the World Cup when I'm in Canada, that'd be annoying. Would it? Yeah, wouldn't Why? it be? I don't know. Because <laughs> you'd miss all the drunken revelry? Yeah. All the people running down the street with their trousers off, yapping drunkenly? Oh, well, I wouldn't go near that. But just, you know, the the joy that English people would, you know, the however many years, 100,000 years of hurt. Yeah, you know, I'm... Oh, have they not won it in a while? Yeah. <laughs> 1962, I'm just Six. kidding. Six. See? Right decade. Yeah. I only know because I heard it on the radio they were playing music from that yeah. year or the other The day. only two years you need to know when you live in England is 1066 and 1966. Okay. The other ones don't. Nothing else matters. Well, maybe 1945. Yeah. We're not going there. Okay. I um, saw... Well, when I was in Bury today... I saw, I, I passed a shop that just said the adult shop and it had like the, you know, little chains hanging down in front of the door. Mm-hmm. Oh, and do they still have those? Yeah, yeah. Apparently in Bury they do. So. Do you say Bury, not Barry? Barry. Bury. I don't know. I say Bury. I'm weird. Okay. Anyway, but I was driving by this thinking how weird it would be for kids. Like when kids see the adult shop, what do they think oh, happens in there? They're right? not stupid. They know it's porn. I don't know. But I noticed that this, you know, totally blank facade, like windows papered over, those weird chains hanging in the, in the, everything's blank except that they had the flags, they had like bunting, plastic bunting showing the flags <laughs> of different nations, gaily strewn, yeah. like around the door and on the linings. And I was thinking, that's so weird. That, like what? they've decorated the adult shop. But you know, you know? I, it's not that it's weird. You know what's really weird about that? That Barry doesn't have the internet. I don't know. Who goes to a shop to buy porno vids? People who've fetishized the idea of going to a shop. It's got to be dildos. It can't be just videos. Oh, I'm sure they have all sorts in there. Lotions. Whatever those are. They've got one. Why why are we talking about this? (laughs) I don't know. They've got one. They've got. I I have to say say one thing. I walked past one. This is funny. No. Lotions. No. We walked past one in the northern quarter. It says potions. Potions, yeah. What the fuck is a, like a love potion? You don't know what a potion is, bro? No, I know what a potion is in oh, the okay. medieval I sense. I guess you're not as experienced as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I just, all I know is nothing. Um, so it's Midsummer Eve, <laughs> which means the, the day before the summer solstice. Douche day. Stop talking about douche. <laughs> I'm trying to like... Okay, I'm trying to appeal to this section of our audience who doesn't give a fuck about the World Cup. Help me out here. What, pagans? Yeah. <laughs> I think that Venn diagram is pretty clear, yeah. okay? Yeah, so what you need to do, pagans, because it's whatever day it is, go down to Stonehenge and smoke a big bowl. Ah, oh, Rob. Is that yeah. what, that's what pagans do, don't they? No. Come to Canada, mate. It's, it's legal now. <laughs> yeah. God, we are the beacon of civilization, Canada. Let's be fair. Yeah. Well, I, I can't really. Second say country in the world, this. gay marriage. Second country in the world, 
legalizing recreation. I think that Vermont should secede and join Canada. We're on the border. The which? Vermont should oh, yeah. secede and join Canada because we also legalize gay marriage and marijuana. You should. You are. A, you're basically a province. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think we've talked enough bullshit for one lifetime. If not 17. Yes. Um, okay, so, you know what's funny about, you know what tickles me about this whole stupid conversation? What? Is that I know that Joanna Walsh will probably listen to this bit, and she's, you know, quite like, erudite and serious and cool and very, uh, I don't know. What would she think about douche commercials? I'm sure Joanna actually has a lot of very entertaining things You're to say right, about yeah. douche commercials. Damn but, it, I wish I'd asked her. But, you know, I just feel for all the listeners who are, like, totally geared up for some high-octane literary chat. Yeah. And, sorry, we're, we're talking about sex shops and douche That's my fault. They're I just going to be... Myself. It's okay, because none of them are listening. They have they have fast-forwarded... Straight to the Joanna Walsh. Straight to the Joanna Walsh. Yeah, that's fine. They, they're allowed to do that. Yeah, but there are all, always those listeners who like this bit better. Yeah, I get that. And I am raising a glass to them right yes. now. Yeah. Well, thank you, listeners who like us best, both of you. Okay, right. So now it's going to be Joanna Walsh talking about her book and talking about all kinds of interesting experimental stuff. So listen. It's very difficult for me to put my finger on exactly what things are when I'm working on them. When I'm working on them, I'm usually not working towards something that is, say, a novel or even a short story, though I've published several collections of short stories. Um, What I'm doing is it comes from somewhere else and I'm just kind of feeling my way towards something and finding a form for it. So Breakup gets called a novel in essays, which seems to be a fair sort of compromise because it's very essayistic. The narrator breaks off at lots of points and... um, starts thinking about stuff that's nothing to do with what's happening to her or doesn't seem on the surface to to be absolutely to do with what's going on uh, but which is suggested to her by her um, surroundings and by the things that she's thinking about so it is a novel in essays um, mm-hmm. but you know I guess it's also a novel that has it's how, how to talk about it. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, I suppose that's what makes it a novel. It's got to, it, ha, it has a, a linearity to it. It has a voice to it. Mm-hmm. So there must be something from which this voice is coming. There's yeah. an intermediary, which is not me. Um, <laughs> and, no, yeah, heard... you know, the, the bagginess of, of what a novel could be is ho- hopefully large enough to accommodate that. Yeah. It's 300 pages. That's a novel, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's it. Yes, it's 80,000 words. I think it's word count. That's yeah. what makes a novel. Yeah, it's got, <laughs> if nothing else. Um, Let's just say that. Yeah. I've been, I've read somewhere. Uh, I didn't kind of get this just when I was reading it, but you can tell me if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. that, it's part memoir. Well, what it is, is something called autofiction, which is not a genre that um, we know that much about in the UK. Uh, I think it's something that's becoming increasingly popular especially with American authors like uh, Chris Krauss, Sheila Hetty, well, Sheila Hetty's Canadian, but North American authors, perhaps. Um, and there's a long history, particularly in France, with writers like Marguerite Duras and Nathalie Sirot, um Emmanuel Carrère, 
using material from their own lives and quite openly saying that this is material from their own lives, but uh, making it into something that sounds like fiction, that uses fictional techniques uh, and uh, sometimes has fictional content. Mm. So where do you draw the line then? Well, that's, or do you? that's a difficult point. I'm probably at different points for different things and probably it's a case-by-case gesture um i think there was there was controversy around chris krause's i love dick which is a novel about her obsession with one of her ex-husband's colleagues who was called dick uh (laughs) but she she did say at some point during the book that she had thought about calling it i love derek uh but it just doesn't sound the same and then that would have been tragic because it's such a good title she goes on to, to talk about the fact he did think about suing her for this because it seemed pretty obvious from her use of his name, although she doesn't use his surname in a way. In a way, he he thought that this was um, was 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 very direct, and that everyone would think it was him. Um, but he didn't do that in the end. I don't really know the whole story of that. Mm. Uh, but I yeah, breakup does involve things that have really happened to me, and I probably haven't gone as near as that. I haven't named anybody. And I don't. And um, interestingly, that works both ways, though, because I don't name the character. Uh, I don't don't name characters generally. Someone just pointed this out to me the other day, and I didn't really think I hadn't thought of it before. But I I don't tend to use names, mostly because I work with voice. Mm. And even when there are a variety of characters, even when I'm telling things in the third person... What I'm really thinking about is narrative voice and how it works. Yeah. So you've not only did you not it is the character uh, I was going to say the ex object of your affection. Mm-hmm. Um, not only is this person not named, but mm-hmm. you address them as you, like you're addressing the reader. Yes, and oh, that's true. That's yeah. another thing I hadn't really thought of. But I, pro- I probably would have thought of it as a reader, but I didn't think of it as a as a. Uh, but occasionally, I do also address the reader as you in the book, and I quite like that breaking the fourth wall or whatever it's called. Yeah, it's, it was interesting because the person is genderless as well because it's you. Yes, and, yes. Um, and I should also emphasise this is not about one person, um, because uh, just in case anybody that I've ever been involved in is getting with get, with is getting paranoid about mm. that. <laughs> yeah, I do think it's. I, th- I thought it was really clever to 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 dress it as you because mm-hmm. you whether it's intentional or not, it involves the reader in it, and like I say, it makes the person genderless, and it can apply to anybody really. I, I guess I, I really got it from the idea of online communication. A lot of this book is about the intensity of communicating through words when the person isn't there. So I'm, I guess I'm echoing that technique, mm-hmm. really. Because it is part memoir. Did Was there a relationship that was just via texts? I've had lots of relationships that are, rely heavily on, um, on writing, partly because I love writing and mm-hmm. I love writing with another person. I love the collaborative nature of that. I love the kind of exchanges that go on. Um, so I, I, I tend to be involved with people who like words too. Uh, But I've also had a lot of a fair number of long distance relationships. So this location, this intermediate location of the internet, of text, of of email, of Skype does come in. Yeah, I like how you you describe it as lacking depth or, um, you know, you can go sideways through is it through time and space? Like it, That's there's the no... difficult bit, it's yeah. which one it is. I think the internet creates a lot of space, or anything digital. There seems to be endless space. You can just keep on hitting return at the end of the 
the key. You can write endless amounts. Uh, you could, so there's a feeling that the net, the web, whatever it is, although those metaphors, net and web, suggest constraint uh, that goes on forever and is endless and you could do anything you like in it. Of course, that takes up a lot of time. So to write endlessly or to read a lot of the stuff that's on the internet takes up a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the relationship between time and space is, is kind of subtly altered through using the internet, I think. Yeah, I also like the, this is something that really rang true for me and something I didn't realize in myself until I read it in your book is how annoyed I am by phone calls. Yeah, I, I find them very difficult. I think it's partly there. there's not the time lag of instant message where you can sit and consider what someone's just written. It almost and, feels and rude, doesn't it, when yeah, someone phones you? Yes, and there's not, there's not the the face cues, I guess, that you get from meeting someone face-to-face or even from a video call. The other thing about space is and the internet is, at the same time as expanding space, it, it contracts it very sharply, that you can be you know, thousands of miles away from somebody else and you can talk to them as if they're in the same room. And at the same time... You know that even in the, they're in a different time zone, so that kind of space-time relationship is also altered. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, you don't know what's happened in between the mm-hmm. time that you're putting it down and the time that they're reading it. So who knows? You know, you could have something massive could ha- happen in their lives or in someone else's life, and you're kind of when someone reads something that you've said, it, it, there's no context, so it's really difficult to. The interesting thing is also that you can read what you yourself have written. So whereas if you sent a traditional letter before the internet, then you could read the reply, but you could never read what you wrote again unless the person to whom you wrote gave you the letter back. Mm -hmm. This has happened with lots of collections of letters. I think Kafka's letters to various of his girlfriends, sometimes because of the events of the late 30s and 40s um, where he was living, half of... The letters have sometimes been lost and then refound. Um, so sometimes you get whole volumes of this kind of correspondence, especially writers' correspondence. But well, Kafka's correspondence is usually usually the letter, just the letters from him are published, which seems bizarre. Though you know, I'm sure because he was a great writer, he was probably writing more interesting letters than the replies he got. But it seems seems extremely strange to just publish one side of a conversation. Mm. Uh, and I do find that often in collections of letters by writers, if if the writer valued the person they were writing to, especially if it's a very intense correspondence, a correspondence between lovers where it was just back and forth rather than just the general letters, all the letters of this person, then why um, why only print the letters from one side? Mm. Yeah, it, and why... Yeah, definitely. Jeez, I've never thought of that before. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a little story about it called Shlovsky Zoo. Okay. Which is a tiny story you can't get hold of anymore because mm. I like because I liked the idea of disappearing letters so much that I made it a very limited edition of 150. It was a little pamphlet uh, yeah. published by Piece of Paper Press, which is run by the writer Tony White, mm-hmm. and they've they've all gone now, so you, you can yeah. never read it again. It's interesting. It, it does seem like letters are becoming more popular in a strange way. Like texting, this modern um, technology that's come about has actually made us appreciate. Letter writing. Because. It might be something like the kind of typewriters that yeah. become popular. I, I, had, I, had, I had a friend in the States who used to send me letters that he'd written on a typewriter. So that he was using two kinds of old technology. And I, I, was, I was very impressed by that. Yeah. They, have you read um, John McGregor's uh, publication at the University of Nottingham, the 
well, what is it you're going to... Letters page. Yes, I've heard, I had a letter in that a, f- a few years ago. I think it's wonderful, that, that idea of... And that kind of materiality of the letters, when he tries to make the publication very material, it arrives as, as like folded-up letters in, a, in an envelope, usually. Um, and he did some very beautiful anthologies based on it, which are also some of which have um, individual envelopes you can open and close and you can put the letters back. That, what a concept. Yeah, it's great, but uh, I think it's it's uh, it, th- that kind of materiality in letters is valuable in the same way as having books when you could just kind of everyone could read on a, a Kindle or whatever device they wanted or a tablet, but people don't, and uh, allegedly the sales of print books have been rising again, mm-hmm. which I think is something to do with how nice it is to feel these paper objects and mm-hmm. to read the words on their surfaces. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited by having breakup is is my first hardback and it has this thing where you can take off the cover and I've never had that before it's 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 quite it's it's like you can take off the cover and you feel and underneath there's the cloth and there is there's embossed lettering on the on the spine um in silver yeah I know and people can can lose the cover and just have the cloth book and yeah that that's all that that whole thing is is pretty exciting yeah I mean it it's also kind of signifies permanence yeah, which I guess. Is, yeah. Which is hilarious when yeah. you think about, you know, the book is is largely based on texts and things yeah. that disappear in, into the ether. I've, I, I've got to say I probably prefer reading paperbacks. I like books that have a bend to them. Mm-hmm. But um, it's very exciting to have this very solid brick-like book for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Um, the book is also really funny. Oh, good. good. I, I, I really like it when people think my work's funny because I... I, I don't tell me that it wasn't to, meant to, to be funny amuse now. Myself. No, I'm, I always, I'm, I, you know, often I'm writing about people who aren't particularly happy, but they usually have a sense of humour about it. You know, they're aware that the small troubles of their lives are not, because I do tend to write about small troubles rather than kind of wars and famines and disease and, and sort of the, the, the horrific major world events. Uh, they, they, have, they have a sense of, of irony about the ridiculous nature of their situation mm-hmm. i had a proper laugh at the bit where i've just picked out a couple of things yeah. and i won't embarrass you by reading you too okay. much of your own stuff back to you but the bit where they're in paris and uh, mm. she said the, gr- the girls were dressed up but the men hadn't bothered or maybe they had yes that stuff like that i i thought was is really funny and really well observed as well um there's also one thing this is like a, a technical thing really that i found interesting is there's quite a lot of americanisms Oh, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I usually use words because I like the rhythm or the sound of them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes only an American word will fit. And I do get ticked off for this sometimes by British editors. Usually I use Americanisms when they, when I need a short word. I find that a lot of American vocabulary is more concise than British. Like, for instance, truck and lorry. I really like, I mean, lorry is a great word, but... Maybe it maybe it sounds like something rumbling over a road, uh, but truck is really it's like a brick or a block. It's like a big, hard edged thing, and I, I it it often works. It's almost as a, as a truck. Yeah, as yeah. A, it work it works much better when I want to talk about a, a big you know brick of a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and jaywalking is quite a good word. Yeah, is but there is is there another word for that? I mean, well, know, it's not illegal like in this cross, country. I could say crossing the road, yeah. crossing the road unwisely. Maybe yeah. that would be the British equivalent. Well, jaywalking yeah. it's 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 a crime. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, 
which I, mm. yeah. Which Do is, people get arrested for yeah, it? Yeah, well, they yeah. get ticketed. I, I, oh, yeah. I've been ticketed oh, right. myself. So it's, so it's like a parking ticket. Yeah. yeah I, don't, I think they're stricter about it in places like Germany. I, I don't know whether you actually get um, any kind of fine, but I know that people don't, when I'm in Germany or, or, or Poland indeed, people don't quite so quickly rush across the road when there is not... Um, a traffic light. Actually, I, I do think I do think in Poland you can get fined. I might. I was there last summer, but someone would have to correct me on this. I'm pretty sure you can actually get fined in Poland if someone sees you jaywalking. Yeah, it was interesting when I first came over here and found out there was no jaywalking <laughs> law. I thought, what are people just getting run over everywhere? And no, in fact, yeah, it's well, just it just works because yeah. people actually look both ways before they cross. Mm. What a concept! The other thing that this book does, and I think we've kind of touched on it already, is it plays with different narrative forms mm-hmm. um that's something that you've kind of always done as well like there's yeah. there's quotes in it by Kierkegaard and as um the BBC front row person discovered they're mostly serious surrealists there are a lot of surrealists yes I mean the quotes I wanted to put in because I'm always thinking about how you can portray someone thinking about other things that have been important to them I, I like the idea that there there's a certain idea in in literature that you should just portray people having a direct experience um, and that that's the most genuine way to portray experience. But our experiences are often very mediated, um, be it through things that we've read and are thinking about or, you know, just stuff like things that are on the television uh, you're thinking about in the context when you're having an argument with someone or when you're, when you're you know, having a nice day out you're thinking you're, you're thinking about how your experience you're thinking helplessly about how your experience compares to these other experiences that you've seen portrayed in, in art in movies on the television wherever um but in this particular book i i wa- really wanted to respond to a number of books about love and about technology uh and they were mostly books by men um <laughs> which I do point out in the first chapter. Uh, One of the things that I very much wanted to respond to, one of the books was uh, André Breton's Nadia, uh, which is a book about love and and about creativity, and these are two of the themes of my book. Uh, But they're from a very male point of view in which the woman, the the idealised lover, is used as a muse. And this is kind of quite typical, but you think that the woman is used as a kind of conduit to both creative experience and erotic experience. Uh, But... I just wondered, well, you know, how would the woman feel about that? The woman in Nadia, um, who we don't really know anything about outside the book, uh, although she was, you know, this was apparently also based on a real experience, so there's that connection there with Breton's book. Uh, She she was also an artist, so she was an artist herself, but, um, and, you know, he puts in pictures of some of her drawings, but he doesn't put any pictures of her, he puts in pictures of where... They met, uh, but she, in some ways, she's very present, but she's also very absent. So I thought, how would it be to be Nadia? How is it to be a woman who is an artist, but is being taken as an artistic experience? Uh, so you know, this is really a kind of Nadia writes back book in mm, some ways. Very interesting. Is it also kind of why the photographs are? The you know, photo- those kind of take the place of the. Well, they they, they that linked up afterwards, I think, because I've 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 did actually do the photographs before I read Nadia. And, uh, but I was aware that other people use photographs in their books, for instance, uh, W.G. Zabold. Um, and they, they're always something to do with memory and perception and how we record our experiences. I did do 
uh, quite a lot of photographs when I was travelling. And I, I, I worry about photographs. I've written several times in the book about photographs and about anxiety around photographs and anxiety about how it is dictated, what we will record of our lives, how we pose, the sorts of things that we choose to photograph. And I just... Found and where myself, we put them. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and especially now, because all our photographs are on digital and, uh, you know, people used to get them all printed out. And also, used to be a pre-digital cameras used to only be able to take one shot, whereas now you can take 20 and just choose the best one. But what do you do with all the rest? Do you throw away that experience? Um, that's quite terrifying. Mm. So I, I wrote a lot about them. And I did do a series of photographs uh, when I was travelling. I found myself photographing not monuments and not sort of typical scenes of wherever I was I found myself photographing odd corners and most often the sky plus an odd corner of architecture I was thinking about like how can we tell where we are um you know the rules of the game evolved as I took the photographs I I, I took them first I started taking them and I thought why am I taking these and how will how can that kind of evolve into a set of rules for taking more and I realized you know I wanted to give hints of where the places were but I also wanted I was interested in the changing weather as I traveled across countries um, I was interested in the hints the architectural hints given but I didn't want to photograph anything that was a really famous monument uh, so, so as if you just dropped into that place yeah I was, I was just I suppose I was I was thinking about what could what can what sort of things can you tell of a place and mm. if you don't photograph the particular things and then then it became an aesthetic in itself and then it became an aesthetic I thought this is getting quite kind of fixed as a, a, a principle in itself and maybe I should also be avoiding that maybe I should overturn it in some way did you find it more difficult to do it um do you find that the places are kind of looking more and more the same not really no no not at all because I think all these but I but I don't know whether they were looking typically themselves um often I would just take a photograph of part of a building that wasn't particularly regionally associative so maybe a 20th or 21st century building that might could have been made more or less anywhere in the world uh but no I didn't I didn't feel that the places were were all the same mm. but I but I didn't feel that the places necessarily changed at the exact point of their borders either yeah the reason I ask is because there's a lot of discussion in this book about what um, another person that's been on this podcast, Danny Denton, described mm-hmm. as non-places. Oh, yeah, yeah, You yeah, know, like the yeah. shoulders of uh, uh, motorways, airports, yeah. you yeah, know. Yeah, I'm very interested in that. Um, yeah, which, is, which yeah. is weird because I've just interviewed him and he talked about that. Oh, yeah. Now, this happens on the podcast all the time. It's mind-blowing. How yeah. It's really strange how people kind of yeah. investigate similar things. But one thing I like doing is I like trying to notice the, th- the things... I'm surrounded by, which I'm told not to notice. So they're often the kind of less picturesque aspects, the less the less typical. Pret-a-manger. Um, yeah, <laughs> you, I could write a book on Pret-a-manger. Mm. So I, wrote, I wrote a book called Hotel, which is about, um, it was mostly about hotels that are trying to be different from each other, that are trying to provide a special, specialised experience. And I was writing about the utopian nature of this 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 calling. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of hotels that are very blank, and I, I've, I've stayed in lots of them, and I kind of like those too. Premier Inn types. Oh, yeah, you know, mm. I, I like... I, what I really like is travel lodges, because everything in them is white and plain, and there's absolutely... They're usually pretty comfortable, but I like I like the complete lack of any attempt to... to Personality, to, yeah, to, to 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 make anything. It's quite it's quite calming and restful. That's interesting because I I'm the exact opposite, which is it's why I I, I love Airbnb. Yeah, staying in strangers' houses yeah. like it's there's something just yeah. I love that too, and I I do it, and you know, 
I also do it because it's cheap, and but yeah, also mm. because you can get in the centre, the, the, the centre of the city, and and the boring practicalities in, of it yeah. in the way that people who live there do. Mm. So yeah, I like both extremes. Yeah, mm-hmm. you've you mentioned on uh, BBC Front Row that you see yourself as a European in the style of European writers rather than mm-hmm. British writers. Is that like is is that a stylistic thing, or do you find that's a kind of a political thing? All sorts of things, really. Um, I suppose I started reading, particularly, I can I, I can speak French. I started reading a lot of 20th century French writers again, you know, kind of Breton was writing in French. Uh, but a lot of writers who appealed to me were those who were writing things around their lives, but also writing in ways that fragmented things like character and plot that, that gave me new approaches to them. Um, I particularly like the work of Marguerite Degas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I mentioned Surat before, uh, Marie Andier. Uh, there's a particular attitude to self in the novel in French writing, uh, which I particularly appreciate. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those where, when you're like me, you speak a single language that you completely miss out on, really. Yeah. I, li- I like... Do you think translations are, yeah. are good enough, or did you still miss well, out? Language, uh, translations are necessary because, you know, I can I can read French, but I can't read any other language adequately. Um, so translations are very necessary. Uh, they're always slightly different. I've, I've had some of my books translated recently into Spanish and French. I can't read the Spanish. I can read the French. And, you know, obviously I read it and I think, well... Uh, you know that they don't seem to be picking up on what I was doing in this, just <laughs> linguistically in this bit. But you can't you can't have everything. No, uh, mostly mostly they've been great, as far as I can tell. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's quite a skill, really. About? Well, translation, yes, it's it's especially with novels. Well, yeah. especially with your work as well. It's because it's so a, experimental. Yeah, and there's like yeah. all kinds. Of, well, to get I, that right would be my collection. Tricky. Worlds from the Words End is being translated into Spanish right now, and I really don't feel. You know, I feel sorry for the translator because it's it's extremely pun heavy, and oh God, of course, yeah. puns you can't do them directly, uh, mostly in, in other languages. But to find equivalents for that kind of pile up of puns that I've done in that, which I really enjoyed, yeah. is going to be hard. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, you also have said that um, you believe in in I guess fiction that narrative borders are kind of breaking down. Do you really believe that? No, I don't. I don't believe that they are breaking down. I think probably they should. Yeah. Um, you know, the the traditional novel with characters and plot where is is thriving so far as I can see. Whatever Will Self says. Mm. Um, but I do find myself drawn to works that cross these borders. Yes. Uh, what was your? What's a good one that you've seen? You've okay, read, well, read lately. I, I particularly like. Poets who write prose, uh, because probably because they're bringing some of the elements of poetry mm. to to prose. I like Anne Boyer's work. She's an American poet, and she recently she's got a new book out. It's only out in the states, but you can get her first book over here. Her first book was called Garments Against Women, and they're very intense, fragmentary lyric essays about um, all sorts of things about bringing up a child as a single mother in the states, about trying to write, about. Um, the, the American political situation, <laughs> and uh, her new one is called "A Handbook of Disappointed Fate," which I'm about. I've got proof of, which is very exciting, and mm. I'm about halfway through reading it. Um, 
So it's, and I similarly like uh, Juliana Safar. I, I'm not quite sure if that's how you pronounce it. Another American poet, Anne Carson, mm-hmm. Canadian. Um, Varney Capaldeo in the UK is doing her, her work is published as poetry, and again she's got these sort of intense lyric prose-like parts. You know, I, 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 in her last collection, Measures of Expatriation, uh, I absolutely love her work. Um, I really like Isabel Wadener as well, who's publishing with a Manchester publisher, Dostoevsky Wannabe. Uh, she had a really great novel last year. Again, it kind of completely pushes at the borders of what a novel is, mm. called Gordy Bauble, in which language <laughs> just takes over and runs with itself and it starts envisaging things that couldn't possibly be made material and you're not quite sure what's happening. But it makes sense linguistically as a kind of system and it's absolutely exhilarating. Wow. Yeah, I always, I, I do, like, personally, I I struggle with uh, seeing the difference, or not seeing the difference, but seeing the similarity. For me, when I, po- poetry and prose seem to be uh, quite different things, whereas... Why? You know, I don't know, I mean, because, you know, there's a... I, if, it's a, if there's a story, it's prose. If there isn't, it's poetry. Oh, that's, an, that's an interesting distinction. I think something I really like in poetry is um, something that I'm trying to do in prose is this assumption of the instability of the I in poetry. You often you often have poems that are about I did this or I felt this or this happened to me. But you don't and you th- you think probably that happened to the poet. You're not always right because you know sometimes that's not true at all. But it's an assumption that's made often made of poetry when you're reading it. But you don't think well, you know, I should check this out historically. I, I wonder if the poet really did that on a Tuesday and then this <laughs> bit was followed by this yeah. bit. So the kind of attitude to veracity and when you're talking about the self is sort of slightly different. You don't disbelieve the poet. It's not a matter of saying this, what you said was untrue. But you have a slightly different attitude to um, what constitutes uh, a, a believable story. Yeah, the other things I was going to talk to you about uh, is Read Women. Mm-hmm. This is a... Well, you tell me. What it, I've seen the Twitter page. What, mm-hmm. what is it that Read Women does to get um, women authors and writers Well, I, th- I more... like to think, I suppose, like my writing, its virtue is that it's it's kind of diverse and not particularly one thing at any one time. Um it was started in 2014, and I didn't really mean to start it at all. I did a little project, I was still doing illustration then, of uh, cards featuring women writers. And I asked people on social media to contribute names of women writers they thought should be better known. And loads and loads of people, you know, hundreds of people sent suggestions. So I, I put these all over the backs of the cards. Um mm. And it seemed that people wanted to go on with this with this discussion about people who should be better known for whatever reason. And so I did for a bit. And then at the end of the month, I thought, I'll just do this for a month. And then at the end of the month, you know, everyone said, no, you've really got to continue doing this. So I thought, OK, I'll make it a year. I'll do it for 2014. So it used to be, first it was called Read Women 2014. And what it really did was was looking at women who, for whatever reason, as I said, you know, either either recovered what gets called recovered voices women who's had been well published in the past but then somehow their work hadn't stayed in print and that this seemed wrong or contemporary women who for whatever reason were finding themselves less well reviewed um less attention was being paid to them than than some of their their, their male counterparts uh so 
we really exist in a kind of quite baggy form. There are four of us. Uh, we are very open to suggestion. We're really a news feed, a sounding board for and and a service for people who want to know more about particular writers. It's it's very personal. Um, people will have their own special interests, but also want to take part in want to tweet about whatever's going on mm-hmm. in the news at the moment or whatever they think should be going on in the news that isn't. Um, so we're really, we're, I, I like to think of us as a sort of support account. Uh, other people do things and instead of the typical thing you hear about on Twitter where there's constant criticism, uh, we support it. You know, we, we, we put the word out there. Mm-hmm. Have you read that Ponty review? Have I read? Out? Yes, Shall, I have. Yes, ta- yes. Is Charlene Tao? Is that her Charlene Tao? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I just read it today. Yes. No, I did read it. Yeah. Yes, um, you know what my thoughts on it were? Um, it would be awful if you really believed that MA courses, creative writing courses, whether MA or any other level, were dedicated towards producing the same kind of writing. That seems a bizarre thing to think, given the variety of teachers I teach Mm -hmm. on. I've taught on various MA courses. I'm currently writer-in-residence at the University of Manchester, where I teach students of all levels, um, really on a personal consultation level. That's that's what I'm doing. But I know very well that my uh, approach is different from those of my colleagues and you know with the greatest respect to them and I hope their greatest respect to me we're going to give writers um, very different kinds of advice so I, I, I think the idea that uh, creative writing courses produce one kind of writing is is probably quite an old-fashioned one yeah I think it's quite an elitist thing as well because it's it seems to me to be like a an old boys club is saying that you know this is how writing should be and anybody who's not in this club that tries to get in is just kidding them or just kidding themselves that's quite a cynical view i suppose well i think there's probably a generation of writers who like me didn't go to a creative writing mm-hmm. school in any way um because they just weren't around uh you know when i was an undergraduate you i don't know whether there were even any courses you could take in creative writing there probably were but you know maybe in a few places in the country um so it's 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 the idea that i i, I don't i don't think that that generation, that my generation of writers are really qualified to judge mm-hmm. what is what what the long term effects of, of writing as a oh the, um, the death of literary fiction yeah well you know what Hear that it might not be such a bad thing mm. I agree <laughs> I would ha- highly happily agree with you on that one yes and I you know literature is doing all sorts of things all the time and not being strictly literary and uh, you know I, th- I think a lot of the most exciting writers around at the moment are interested in genre, interested in fanfic, um, interested in all kinds of informal methods of writing, uh, you know, and they're, and they're certainly the ones who are being read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with not being read by that many people either, I think. No, I think that's, it, yeah. isn't that what it, isn't that the point? Sort yeah, of? <laughs> you know, um, I guess one of the good things about the globalisation of literate, literature, particularly in the English speaking world, through things like the internet, is you no longer think there's a novel for everyone. You no longer think there's such a thing necessarily as the great British novel. Um, you can you can read the, the the great novel of I don't know um, the Northern Quarter in Manchester. That kind of nexus between extreme particularism and um, wide dissemination is is very interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting because they don't. If I think there is a happy middle as well. Like, it, there's no just because something there's there are loads of books, and I think more so mm-hmm. now than ever, of books that are being that are widely read but are still, you know, have literary merit. I don't. I don't like the idea of there being one book for everyone. You know, the kind no. of must-read book. I think there are there are lots of books for lots of people, and it's just access to those books that's the important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you very much, Joanna. Thank you. Okay, so that's uh, Joanna Walsh. Is interview. She's great. She is. Yeah, I'm a fan. I know you've not listened to the interview yet, but. You will like it. I've interviewed her myself many times. I know, times. mine's better. Yeah, we'll see. It won't be better because you know all her stuff. Yeah, I think you guys will be too cozy. Probably. Yeah. People yeah. say that to me on this thing. When I interview people who I know, I go, those are the worst ones. Oh, because it's, it's too much talk about people that you both know and yeah. friends that you both have. Yeah, which it's is not... funny because that's exactly what we do in the intro. But Yeah. Have you got anything to plug? Um... Just the Waterstones thing. Oh, yeah. Did we did that, that already. Yeah. It's we plugged that already. That already. Um, no, I'm unplugging myself. I'm going to be writing. Most, like, I have a big project now, and I'm going to be going away to write for most of the summer. I'm going to be in Canada, so I'm not sure. There, there might not even be a July podcast. There might not. Maybe I'll do one from on my own in, in Eastern Canada. Those winds whipping across the yeah. Manitoba, the Saint Lawrence, the hell you are, <laughs> the Saint Lawrence River. Right. Okay. Anyway, that's it. All right. Bye, Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.